This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They are some of our favorites. Our next story comes to us from Iowa, where scattered across small towns and rural counties, one can find the Freedom Rocks. These painted rocks are the brainchild of Ray Bubba Sorensen, who started his mission in the late 1990s, and his work today inspires many Iowans to visit each of these memorials. One of those individuals inspired by the Freedom Rocks is Joy Neal Kidney, our regular contributor and listener on WHO in Des Moines. Take it away, Joy. Thousands of people visit a huge rock sitting along Highway 25 near Menlo in western Iowa, about a mile south of Interstate 80. For years it was covered with graffiti, but while artist Ray Bubba Sorensen was still a teenager, this native of Greenfield had been inspired by the movie Saving Private Ryan and thought of a way he could give veterans a unique recognition with that 12-foot-tall boulder. From Memorial Day 1999, Sorensen painted patriotic scenes all over the rock. Word got around. People from all over wanted to see it. The next year, he repainted it with new scenes to thank our veterans for their sacrifice and service. As an annual donation, Ray Sorensen repaints that original Freedom Rock in time for Memorial Day. An American flag draped over the top has become a fundamental part of his compelling creations. Only the Huey helicopter stays because since 2006, its paint has been mixed with the ashes of Vietnam veterans. What if he could arrange for a rock designed especially for each county? Even more local men and women could be recognized. The idea took off, and in 2013, Iowa's Freedom Rock Tour began. The shimmering outstretched wings of an American bald eagle seemed to support five young men in uniform on a large stone at Membran, Iowa. An American flag shields them from above. Those five young men honored on Dallas County Freedom Rock are my mother's brothers. One by one, all five Wilson brothers left the Minburn farm to serve in World War II. Only two came home. Two dozen years ago, I began writing about the Wilson family. Some of my journaling included prayers, prayers that their losses would be remembered and maybe people would want to even see where their stories had taken place. Two dozen years ago, Bubba Sorensen was still in junior high. He'd never even thought about painting a rock. What an awesome answer to prayer. People visit the Dallas County Freedom Rock, then send me photos of themselves with those young uncles. My grandmother, Leora Wilson, would be gratified to know that her family's enormous sacrifice will never be forgotten, remembered so poignantly on this imposing monument. Sports greats Bob Feller from Van Meter and Niall Kinnick 
from the Dallas County seat of Adel are depicted on the north side of the rock. Both served in World War II. Kinnick lost his life in a training mishap and was never found. One of the Wilson brothers has also never been found. Another was killed in a training accident. The third was killed in action and is buried in an American cemetery in France. Ray Sorensen's handsome work also honors first responders and local history. Each Freedom Rock has a focal point for what's honorable about each area, preserving what is precious and should never be forgotten. Iowa's Freedom Rock 7 deed inspired tourism. I know of individuals and families in cars and vans, also veterans on motorcycles, who have made it a goal to see all 99 Freedom Rocks. Some of them keep photo albums of their visits. Some very small Iowa towns will have more visitors than they ever imagined. With a population of just 365 souls, Membrane is one of Iowa's smallest towns. Located along Highway 169, just south of the restored Membrane Depot, now a bar and grill, this memorial is also near a bicycle trail. Yes, a memorial. It reminds me that in the Old Testament, Joshua was instructed to take stones from the Jordan River as memorials to their history, so that future children would ask what those stones meant. What a perfect outing for families to take their children to see one or more of the Freedom Rocks, to explain what Iowa's treasured tributes mean. Most Freedom Rocks are accompanied by a storyboard, which helps explain who the pictured local heroes are and why they should be recognized. What a moving way to experience an attractive dose of history, to ponder service and sacrifice, what patriotism is all about, and why we all should pause to remember. During the winter months, Ray Sorensen designs murals all over the country, indoors and out, depending on the climate. He has been inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame and is now an Iowa State Legislator. His artistic talent and his compelling vision for these iconic Freedom Rocks has turned into a blessing and a real legacy for the whole state of Iowa. And again, a special thanks to Joy Neal Kidney and to the folks at WHO for carrying our show. And thanks to Ray Bubba Sorensen, and I'm just going to call you Bubba because that's what everyone else I'm sure calls you. And my goodness, doing this kind of thing, what an inspiration for people all over the country. You paint one rock to honor people and their sacrifices in your town, and the next thing you know, there are 99 Freedom Rocks. Go to Google and Google these rocks. It's just beautiful. And the fact that five Wilson boys went off to war, the would-be uncles of Joy Neal Kidney, and that only two came back, well, that's worth honoring and painting a rock for. And that young Bubba, well, he understood this as a teenager. Oh, my goodness, be still my heart. Joy Neal Kidney's story, Bubba Sorensen's story about the Iowa Freedom Rocks, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything, as you know, but we love talking about music and telling stories about music and every kind of music, from classical to rock to country, and in this particular instance, hip-hop. And our next story comes to us from the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan, where there's a growing underground music scene, and today we're talking with a hip-hop producer in this particular scene. Here's Monty Montgomery with the story. Detroit, Michigan is known for a lot of things. From Greek town to Motown, and everything from cars, Werner's ginger ale, and its potholes in between. But Detroit also has a booming hip-hop scene. And today we sit down with one person involved in the production end of all of this. My name is Mitchell Biggs. I'm from southeastern Michigan. I grew up about 30 minutes out of Detroit. And I make sample-based hip-hop music and I don't know what to call it. You could say low-fidelity house music. So sample-based hip-hop is basically I'll take an old record, something from, I mean, who knows when. It could be anywhere from the 50s to even just last decade. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that's been out for a long time. And I'll take that record and I'll flip it in some way. I'll speed it up, I'll slow it down, and I have a sampler that basically allows me to chop up the record. And then I replay the original melody in a new form. My dad calls it stealing with extra steps, but that's basically what I do. I sample a lot of old acapella groups. I sample a lot of a lot of soul music. And then the low fidelity house element is I take elements of house music, a lot of repetitive kick drums, a lot of consistent grooves, and I mix it with a lot of lower quality sounds, just in so far as it won't sound like something that is crisp and clean like you might hear on the radio or that you might hear in, in one of your favorite albums. It's usually gonna be a bit, you could call it uglier, I guess. You know, the sound quality's lower and that's part of the appeal. It gives it this warmth and this nice character. Samples I like the most come from the records that I love the most and that I appreciate the most. I really do think that that it's true that you can just sample a record and you can just take a sound or a piece of it that you like and not really sit with it. But I really like to listen to the album and experience it front to back. One album that I particularly love is By the Silvers. Uh, they switch between acapella and what you could call, I guess you could call it soul. And they have a lot of big band behind them. And I listen to that record all the time. A part of when you're sampling a record is you you want to listen to it and in my opinion you want to feel like you really resonate with what's being made in the original you know it's not just about getting a good sound it's not just about finding something easy to to flip you want to find something that you find genuinely compelling you know that you that you listen to it and you think wow this really says something about the human experience or speaks to my experience and, and you want to sample it in that way and for mitchell music has always been a part of life. So I've been playing since I was a kid. I started playing bass. I think I was maybe nine. And from there, I started picking up other elements of percussion, got into guitar. I've never been a singer, although I did recently try my hand at that. I'm not much of a singer, but I really do love instrumentation. And so that sort of segued about two years ago, I'd say. I was living out in DC. I was actually living in Fairfax and I was commuting to DC for work. 
and I spent a lot of time in this relatively empty dorm room. And so I had a lot of free time. I had a lot of time on my own. And so I started getting into making beats and, and there were musicians that I had particularly loved that sort of inspired me. I, I enjoyed their music so much and I thought I could, I could make something like that. And so I started doing a lot of emulation of the artists that I enjoy the most. And then slowly but surely over the last two years, I sort of developed and ironed out my own sound. And Mitchell would move from the dorm room to his hand-built home studio to record his first album with his childhood friend and rapper Merrick, a collaborative effort. Mitchell now takes us inside the recording process of a hip-hop album. It was a short album. It was only seven songs, but each song was relatively long, and there was a pretty consistent theme across the project of, if I had to summarize it, I would say, for Merrick, it was a lot about making peace with childhood trauma and uh, mending situations with his parents. And for me, because I had made the beats, a lot of it was just figuring out how to make music. I'd say the greatest challenge when working on that album with Merrick was him and I both have very different workflows, I guess you could say. I made all the beats well before we started recording. You know, so I had had a lot of time from day one when I made the first beat to when I made the last one to sort of work through the process and to put everything together. And so I wasn't on as much of a time crunch as he was because once we finished the beats and he had written the verses, he wanted to record, we wanted to finish the project. And at the time we were coming into Christmas break. It was the start of December. And our idea was to record the album over the entirety of break. But Merrick was having a hard time getting back into the headspace that he was in when he wrote the original verse. You know, sometimes you capture something in the moment and you want to emulate it later and you can't, you can't recreate it because what was happening in that moment has came and went. And so he was trying to bring back up a lot of feelings and emotions and presentation. And he just wasn't happy with any of his takes. And we kept going over and over and over. And during that time I made changes to the beats because I could. And, and so I was working through the beats he was working through his verse and we didn't end up finishing it that Christmas break and we wouldn't end up finishing the album until that summer. When you hear the finished product, there's a couple things that you walk away from it with. At first, it seems like the project has been, it's always was gonna be this way. You know, you never hear any of the outtakes, you never hear any of the early mixes of the beats. And so when you're actually making the album, you know, we changed our setup a lot. When we first started in December, we had a lot of friends over, you know, we were partying, you know what I mean? We were hanging out, we were having a good time. And that was just not the environment for Merrick to basically spill his heart out over, you know, his, his parents' divorce and whatnot. And so the environment that we had cultivated really didn't lend itself towards the type of experience we were going for. On my end, I didn't, I thought the recording process was a blast because everything I had to do was over. But then once Merrick expressed that this environment really wasn't working for what he was trying to do, we ended up changing the whole layout. And so we made it a bit more cozy. We set up more candles. We put up more blankets and stuff like that just to give it a warmer environment than a Michigan basement. And I was barely downstairs for a, a large portion of the recording process. I would be in another room hanging out, doing whatever, just to give Merrick as much alone time, personal space as possible. And that's one more aspect of recording I want to touch on. 
is that when you're making a rap verse, it's very hard to record part of the verse and then record another part later and then another part later. You know, a big part of rapping is the flow of the words. There's poetry to it. Uh, it is poetry. And, and it's very difficult to pick up in the middle of a verse and try and record from there and get the same energy, get the same cadence that you would have had if you started from the beginning. So that was the really hard part. Was It wasn't just about getting any one part of the verse of the chorus right. It was about getting the entire verse, the entire chorus right on one take. And that can be really hard to do. I think what that experience taught me was personally, on the one hand, I don't have to recreate anything in a recording studio. You know, I don't have to, it's not so much a performance for me. I can work on it easily. It's hard for me to get out of my zone when I'm making a beat because there's not a whole lot that I have to do live. And so when I worked on that, I thought, wow, I really, I wasn't ready for so much being out of my control because in my ideal world, I'd be working on this every night, cranking it out and I could finish it rather quickly. And that just wasn't the situation we were in. And so I, it taught me a lot about just being patient and relaxing and understanding that you can't really put a timetable on some things. Sometimes you have to work through stuff, you have to work through songs, you have to work through stuff in life. And you can't say that you know, this issue or that issue is gonna be resolved in a month and then I'll have the, the mental capacity to work on an album. You just don't know what's gonna happen and you have to roll with it. And you've been listening to Mitchell Biggs and he's a Detroit hip hop producer and you've never heard of him and maybe you will and maybe you won't. And that's not the point. We've done many music stories here on this show from everybody from Tupac to Merle Haggard, from Johnny Cash to House of Pain. And so music's music to us. Our Miles Davis is a real favorite. And Rostropovich, the great conductor. And of course, our hour on Vladimir Horowitz may be my favorite musical hour of all. And I'm not a big classical music guy, but what a story about a great musician who came to America to experience not just freedom in the ways we normally think, but artistic freedom. And that's what Mitchell's doing in, in his home studio and what young people around this country are doing in home studios, trying to get the vibe, trying to get the flow, trying to make magic, and it's hard. Mitchell Big's story, a Detroit hip-hop producer's story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and up next, Robbie brings us a story that starts in the United States, travels around the world, and then comes back home. It's the story of Tina Ramirez and her passion for freedom of religion, which started at a very young age. Here's Tina. Growing up in the rural part of Virginia, my dad was a doctor. My mom, uh, he started a little family practice out in the rural part of Virginia, and my mom was a nurse midwife and you know, I lived a pretty simple childhood. Back then in the 80s, their life was, I think, a lot simpler. We didn't have as much as kids growing up, you know, to distract us. So we played in the woods a lot and went to church and spent time with family. And so I was very close to my dad growing up. And then when I was about 11, my parents got divorced. And so I think that the thing that really kind of 
changed my life more than anything was that when my, my dad left, um, he actually joined the Jehovah's Witnesses, which um, believes a lot in proselytizing. And so he would, he, he just, his, his faith changed and he would often try to convince me that what he believed was right. And growing up in the church myself, I was very confused and frustrated at the same time. And so I started studying theology and understanding, well, what do I believe? What I remember most is that because uh, his new faith is so different and it, what it did was that it isolated him in many ways from our family. A lot of us just didn't understand. And so that led me to, you know, you feel the sense of like exclusion or of distance with somebody that I was one of the closest kids to him. So he, you know, I was like daddy's little girl. So for me, it was just this really difficult experience where you feel like the, the person that should be close to you feels the farthest away. And um, you know, those are the formative years for a young girl. And so feeling that distance from your dad is a very difficult thing. I think over that, the course of our conversations and just as the years pass, what I grew to understand is that he believes very strongly in what he believes. And it made me actually feel even more strongly in my convictions and know what I was convicted about and be able to live by them. But it also helped me understand that I can love and appreciate him and respect him and his ability to believe something even if I believe it's wrong or even if he believes that I'm wrong, that that's okay. And I think that's really the key that, that made me somebody that became passionate about religious freedom for all people. The, the thing that I see more than anything in the world is that people are afraid of of others somehow because they have strong beliefs or they're passionate or they try to convince you of their beliefs that somehow they're a threat to you and they're not a threat it's okay you know if if you if your beliefs are strong enough they'll stand up the test in college tina had another one of these experiences that would propel her down the path of human rights and religious freedom advocacy i studied at the international institute for human rights in strasbourg france and that was when i was 20. So I was, that was my last few credits in college and uh, it was a law school class actually, so I wasn't even, I was kind of young for it, but um, they let me, they let me in. <laughs> so, and I just remember being in this class with all these law students and being fascinated by how you could use this body of law to really advance rights for people. And it was in France, so I met people from all over the world, I mean, there were, hundreds of people at this course. Every summer they go for one month and they just study human rights. And then on the side, we would have these afternoon courses to learn about religious freedom. And through these courses, Tina realized she could bring that knowledge to others. I finished high school in three years. I finished college in three years. So by 20, I was, a, I was ready to be a school teacher. I, I was in Orange County, California at the time. So, you know, it can be often perceived as a bubble <laughs> because it was very, very wealthy and and prosperous area and I wanted them to have a bigger perspective of the world that hey there are a lot of people that just don't have the, the, the blessings and the opportunities that we have and let's see how we can be more globally minded and, and think how can we stand up and make the world a better place for more people. It was powerful what happened because the students that came out of that classroom that was 2000, the year 2000. 
I remember having one little boy who was an Afghan refugee, and this was before the, the war. So um, at the time, the, the Taliban were destroying all the Buddhist history in Afghanistan. There was this historic Buddhist culture there. And obviously putting women um, in the public where they were, they were literally stoning them to death. And so there was this huge outcry internationally about the rights of women and, and religious communities in, in Af Afghanistan. But at the time I had this little boy from Afghanistan in my class and he would go around and he'd beat kids up. And he was a little kid, but he, he had a lot of anger in him. And I was doing testing both pre and post on the impact that the students, their, both their, their differences in attitudes and behaviors before and after the, the course that we did to see if it had an impact. And this little boy that used to go around being violent, at the end of the course that I wrote, they all had to do different projects. But he, he did a project where I, I asked him, you need to look into what's happening to these women in Afghanistan. So he did. And at the end, he wrote a letter to President Bush and he said, President Bush, I want you to help these women. They're like birds in a cage. They don't have a voice and they just need help. Will you help them, please? And he, um, he was transformed as a person. He was not violent anymore in class. And I just, what I saw there was that this is powerful. There's something here. When you teach kids human dignity, that people have value, that words matter, that they have responsibilities to one another, that really transformed him and so many of my students. And I was able to prove that. And so anyway, my research ended up being used by the United Nations and Amnesty International for their decade on human rights education. And it was this really, because it was the first data to prove that it had an impact, but I saw lives transformed and I was really encouraged by it. And I knew that there's something powerful here. Tina would eventually start a nonprofit called Hardwired, founded on the idea that no matter where a person is born, they're hardwired for freedom. But before she would do that, she spent some time in Washington, D.C. Before I started Hardwired, I worked for the U.S. Congress, and I helped build a bipartisan caucus to defend religious freedom around the world. So we defended people of all faith, people of no faith. It, it was our priority just to defend the principle of religious freedom and freedom of conscience for everyone. It kind of been lost in Congress at the time. It had become pretty partisan and one faith-focused issue, and so I, I spent a long time, four years, built, rebuilding that. But basically in Congress, you're just, you're, you're dealing with the after effects. And so you don't have the ability really to address root causes of conflict. And I think that was probably the most frustrating thing for me is that being somebody that likes to solve problems and be, you know, get things done in some way, working up in Congress, I realized that the people on the ground in these countries that were suffering needed something more. They needed people that were on the ground that could defend them immediately because often the suffering that they experienced lasted much longer than it needed to because they were always having to depend on outside help. But if they had had people inside that could stand up and defend them, kind of like we've had in America historically, with our you know, founding fathers and the, the leaders that we have even in our country, you can, you know, and you can go across the street and find someone that's gonna defend your religious freedom if it's attacked. But in these countries, that just doesn't happen. And so, I realized that the greatest, my, my greatest frustration up there was why I needed to leave and to do something different. And so I did. I mean, Iraq is probably one of the saddest cases because when the United States went in, um, 
the Christian church, the Yazidis, the Mandaeans, all the different minority faith communities there suffered so much. And then of course, both Sunnis and Shias were killing each other and they still are. But the minorities were disproportionately affected, even especially the Jewish community there. To the point where there's, out of like 50,000 Mandaeans that were in Iraq before the war, there's like less than 4,000 or 3,000 there right now. So with the Iraq war, all of these faith communities were disproportionately targeted and attacked. And there were no amount of hearings and legislation that we could propose to really stop that. And so that's what really led me to lead, leave Congress and to start Hardwired, which it establishes local leadership in countries where they don't have it to defend religious freedom. And it's more than just religious freedom. It's really about helping local leadership understand in situations where people kill each other over religion or they disregard the, the minority populations and their, their needs, it's helping them see the value of every person in a society and not being afraid of people of different faiths and beliefs or ethnicities so that they can learn how to work together, overcome those fears, and mitigate a lot of the conflict so that they can build a country where they can live together in peace. There's a judge who is now in charge of the court that is sentencing all, the, all of the members of ISIS responsible for genocide. But um, at the time, he was a part of our training. He was a judge from Mosul who had had to flee because ISIS had overrun Mosul. And um, his family actually all were left behind, but he was one of the oldest, and so he was able to leave. He was in, the, in charge of the court handling um, sentencing uh, terrorists, and so they knew that he would be targeted if he didn't flee. So he fled, and he went to Baghdad. And when we met him, he was in Baghdad, and he was... Um, he was handling these courts, and so after the training, he was so moved by what he had learned. He's a Sunni Muslim judge. He, he spent the whole next day going to visit the Yazidi and the Christian communities and telling them, I want you to know I'm going to defend your rights in the courts. I'm going to help you. And then a few months later, we, we train them several times over the course of the year until they can be self-sufficient. And so one of the next trainings we did over in Iraq, we went back and we saw him. We asked him how he was doing. and. He showed us his cell phone and this image on his cell phone, which was a picture of his 17-year-old brother being beheaded by ISIS. And I was, I mean, just, you know, you, you see that and it's not, it, Amer, Americans have had to see it a couple times with, with journalists and people that, that shock our conscience. but. Um, you know, when I work with people who are living, uh, risking their lives to defend others, it, um, I understand the gravity of, of it in a different way, I guess, um, because I know that their lives are at risk with what I'm teaching them and that I'm sending them back in these dangerous situations. But what he said to me was, he said, Tina, I know that this is a warning, but if I don't go out and defend the rights of all people, if I don't defend this religious freedom for everyone, this is the reality that awaits every person in Iraq. He's now become the head judge in charge of sentencing all of these members of ISIS because he didn't give up. And I think what it showed me and just I was so encouraged by is that's exactly what we wanted to do at Hardwired. We wanted people like him, we call them defenders of freedom, that would 
risked their own lives to defend the rights and the freedoms of other people, even if they disagreed with them, but because they saw they were all on the same team for the same, that, they, that religion wouldn't be the obstacle to working together, that they would see that human dignity as something that could draw them together and work together towards that greater good. And to know that we had contributed to that and that our supporters had contributed to that. And uh, so many people can be discouraged by the situation in Iraq. And what encourages me, even in the midst of what's happening there right now, is that we built Hardwired because when the door closes to outside help, there's still hope when we can establish local leaders who can defend freedom for others. It would be wrong for Americans to think that we're the, you know, the savior of the world or the answer to everyone's problems. We're not. But we have, we've been given this, we've inherited really this gift of freedom that we can um, teach others in some ways and help them come out of, you know, just years of dictatorship and oppression. So just after Christmas, there was a, a Jewish you know, rabbi's home was attacked, and then there was a Christian church where somebody shot at the, the, the parishioners. I mean, we, we've, but we've seen it with, with mosques being attacked. We've seen it across the country where people of faith are being attacked. And somehow, somehow, like, this holy place of worship for people is not off limits anymore. And um, regardless of who they are and what they believe, I find that very troubling because America was really founded on this ideal of freedom for people to believe differently. And that that is something that every country in the world looks to us to really champion. And right now we're struggling with that. And so at Hardwired, we have been looking at taking the education program that we do around the world here in American schools. So one of the things that we do is we train leaders, but we also train teachers. And so right now, Hardwired has been able to work with governments like Morocco and Lebanon and Iraq, Kosovo, um, several countries around the world to, to teach freedom of religion, freedom of belief, freedom of conscience in their public schools. And that's transforming communities. So Hardwired's releasing a huge um, study on like documentaries and and resources that these teachers that we're working with around the world have created showing the impact on children and students and communities around the world in really difficult places. And our goal is then to take those stories to schools in the United States where, where communities are struggling with intolerance and violence and, and bullying. And we believe that it really is a very important conversation to have in our country right now. But I remember when I was a teacher, there was nothing out there on this. And so the last 20 years, I've been developing curriculum and, and doing things to figure out how we can promote human rights education and education for freedom of conscience. But we have a huge need right now, and I would love for teachers anywhere that want to be a part of it to, to join me. We have an opportunity now to really take what's happening here in our country and respond here. Look, I grew up without like my college years, I wasn't on the internet, I wasn't like doing social media. During my formative years, I grew up where you had to talk to people face face to face. And even with my dad, if you you know look back at him and I had a really significant area of disagreement, but we worked through it face to face. 
And so I was able to learn how to be civil and have civil conversations with others that I disagree with uh, from a very early age. And unfortunately, that's something that's really missing uh, with, I think, really the use of social media and the lack of personal interaction. Uh, because it's very easy to like or dislike somebody, to unfriend someone, and, and I think that that's changed our ability to interact with people. Social media can be a huge vehicle for social change and for and for helping people that don't have a voice have a voice. And at the same time, it can be a, a huge place for incivility and for hate and intolerance. And the schools and education and that one-on-one -on -one interaction that teachers and parents have with children is so important and valuable. And it really, there's nothing else that can, um, that you can't really replace that with anything else when you're really trying to teach civility and dialogue and respect for differences. And this doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It just means, do you know how to dialogue with somebody that you might disagree with and respect the dignity of them so that you don't have to lash out with intolerance and violence? We as individuals, as a parents, as teachers, need to be vigilant to safeguard um, that next generation and the freedoms that, that they will secure for the future. And a special thanks to Tina Ramirez, Hardwired for Freedom. Go to hardwiredglobal.org to learn more. And by the way, religious tolerance and freedom, well, it is the most distinctive feature of this great country. And I wanted to read something to close out the hour. It's George Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. And he wrote it in August of 1790. He writes and closes the short letter with these words, May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land, continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree. And there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy. George Washington's words then, as true now as they ever were, as important now as they ever were. Tina Ramirez's story, Hardwired for Freedom, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. In 1938, German scientists learned the power of splitting an atom, and with that, they gained a huge head start in what was truly the first nuclear arms race. But instead of a stockpile, the race was to just get it right, and then maybe they could replicate the results. 
in the town that housed the bulk of the work of the Manhattan Project, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, there was a single photographer, Ed Westcott. This is the story that led to the end of World War II and the one man that photographed it all. Here's Arthur Richard Cook with the story. In August of 1934, President Hindenburg of Germany died. Chancellor Hitler moved quickly to consolidate the office of president and chancellor and molded it into a new position as dictator. His new title was Führer. A national referendum weeks later was approved by 90% of the voters. Meanwhile, in Nashville, Tennessee, Ed Westcott's father, after saving for a year, bought 12-year-old Ed his first camera. They found a used mobile lunch wagon, which they renovated into a darkroom. Family, friends, and neighbors could get film developed for 50 cents a roll. He was largely self-taught. He started working with portrait studios in Nashville while still a teenager. There were clues in East Tennessee in September of 1942. A press release published in newspapers said the military was building an ammunition testing range outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. This partially explained the condemnation of 58,000 acres by the government. The reports in newspapers were a total lie. Farmers who owned the land were totally in the dark. Surveying crews asked permission to be on their land for a few hours. In November, owners found a single piece of paper attached to the screen front door, announcing that the owners of the land had three weeks to vacate the property. It was being confiscated by the federal government. Many of these families had farmed their land for generations. The farmhouses were bulldozed down in a matter of days after the eviction date. The ammunition testing range excuse was done on purpose. It discouraged squatters, and it worked. The families viewed their farms as a personal garden of Eden. The land provided for all their needs, both physically and spiritually. Most families never, ever got over the quick, harsh eviction. They were compensated for their land, but hundreds of farmers were looking for new farmland at the same time. Prices went through the roof. Many of the farmers ended up working at the industrial plants, which were built on their former land. Meanwhile, 160 miles to the west in Nashville, a 20-year-old man had a decision to make. Ed Westcott was a photographer for the Nashville office of the Army Corps of Engineers. The office was being closed. Ed was offered two options. He could transfer to the Alaskan Highway to document the construction of it, or he could go to a new installation outside of Knoxville. Ed had spent all of his entirely too brief life in Tennessee. He had recently gotten married and had a newborn son. Knoxville it was. 
he accepted the job in November and would start in January of 1943. His employee number was 29. Little did he know that in less than three years, he would create the most important photographic archive of 20th century American history. Ed said there wasn't much going on when he reported to work. Putting in roads and rail lines was the first order of business. Ed said if this was a war project, it wasn't much of a project. Ed dove into his work. From January 1943 until the end of the war in August of 1945, he took somewhere between 15,000 to 20,000 photographs. In an era where everyone has a camera on their cell phone, that doesn't sound like much. 16 to 21 photographs every single day. But it was a different time. The cameras were heavy, and often he needed heavy tripods to mount his camera on. During the war, Ed had a 4x5 speed graphic, which used roll film with six exposures on each roll. And then he had an 8x10 Deerdorfer, which used a single sheet of film for each photograph. If he was shooting inside, he had to use bulky floodlights, which took a long time to set up, and oftentimes for just a single shot. And at the end of the day, he had to go back to his darkroom and develop the day's film and print proof sheets. Then there might be a dance to shoot later that night. Cameras were banned in the secret city, his was the only camera in a town of 75,000. And for a guy with ambition, his side hustle as a photographer was almost a full-time job on its own. There were many weddings each weekend. The fastest growing department at the hospital was the maternity ward. If you needed photos of your firstborn, Ed was the man. And when we come back, we'll continue this remarkable story of a man, a town, and a time. And my goodness, we all have these points in our life, a pivot point, where he could have gone to Alaska or stayed in Knoxville. And he didn't know which was which. But the choice to stay in Knoxville, well, it would change his life. And he captured a major part of American life, a fundamental part of the 20th century, the Manhattan Project in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And when we continue... Richard Cook will tell us the rest of Ed Westcott's story here on Our American Story. And we're back with our American stories and the story of the Manhattan Project, the perfecting of atomic weaponry, and the building of a 75,000-person town in less than three years. We continue with Richard Cook. The speed and scale of Oak Ridge was unlike anything the country had ever seen. From the time the farmers were evicted until the day Japan surrendered was a mere 1,020 days. 
This top secret installation went from cows grazing pasture land to the fifth largest city in the state and one of the largest industrial complexes in the history of mankind. Splitting an atom was an astonishing new energy source and it was fully realized in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Timing, both good and bad, can be a terribly random thing. In December of 1938, two scientists in Germany discovered a uranium atom could be split and release a massive amount of energy. Barely eight months later, Germany invaded Poland and World War II started. The first perception of atomic power by the world would be during a war. General Dick Groves ran the Manhattan Project. He was a no-nonsense, impatient taskmaster. His second in command was Colonel Ken Nichols. They were hired in September of 1942. Things happened quickly. They made the decision to step up the process to condemn 60,000 acres of farmland west of Knoxville, Tennessee. They also obtained from the War Production Board a triple-A priority rating. It was the highest rating possible. There were shortages of thousands of materials during the war. The Manhattan Project would be first in line for anything and everything. Another objective was to borrow from the U.S. Treasury 14,000 tons of silver for the industrial plants in Oak Ridge. That is equal to the weight of 9,000 cars. And finally, they also contracted with a uranium mine owner in the Belgian Congo for 1,250 tons of high-quality uranium ore. Dick and Ken completed these four vitally important objectives during the first four days on the job. In 18 months, they built the fifth largest city in the state. During the peak, a home was completed every 30 minutes. There were over 6,000 massive industrial machines separating two isotopes of uranium. Oak Ridge devoured 10% more electricity than New York City during the war. New York had over 7.5 million residents. Oak Ridge, about 75,000. For safety reasons, workers lived miles from the industrial sites. These were new experimental processes creating a new type of uranium. There were worries an accident would be catastrophic. So to ferry workers to and from the plants, they built the ninth largest bus system in the country. A bus arrived or departed from the main terminal every 60 seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Even with the industrial plants, the speed of construction was head spinning. The problems were huge. For every 2,000 pounds of raw uranium, there was only 14 pounds of the precious uranium-235. The plants were named S50, K25, and Y12. 
The names were total gibberish. They were created to make sure absolutely nothing was conveyed to the workers or the outside world about the purpose of these plants. Normally, after a theory is proved out in the laboratory, a prototype is built to see if the idea is scalable. There was no time for that. K25 used a filter method. There was a 2% difference in the size of uranium-238 and the smaller uranium-235. A filter would have holes small enough that the larger 238 could not pass through it easily, but the smaller 235 could. A filter the size of your thumbnail would have over 15 million holes in it. When they started building K25, the scientists had not developed a filter which worked. The scientists just kept grinding out possible solutions until they developed one which worked. Much of what happened in Oak Ridge was based mostly on blind faith. Why such a rush? Only people in the highest echelons of the military, government, and science knew the horrible secret which kept all of them awake at night. Hitler had his own atomic weapons program. We knew almost nothing about it. But what was known was nightmarish. Hitler had a two-year head start. This was the original arms race. If Hitler got the weapon first, London would be gone. Moscow most likely too. If Hitler could get an airfield in Greenland, the entire east coast of the United States would be under threat. The resulting carnage would make the Holocaust look like a tiny blip on a moral radar screen. There were 75,000 workers in Oak Ridge. Only two to 300 workers knew the purpose of the giant industrial site. But all the workers were highly motivated to end the war. They had family and friends dying in distant lands. The loss of American life during World War II would equal a 9-11 attack every five days for three and a half years. From the bottom up, workers were pleading with their bosses, what can we do to end the killing? And from the top down, the leaders did their own pleading, faster, just work faster. Forces from the very top of the Manhattan Project and the fears of workers on the bottom rung of the labor pool all came together in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, unlike anywhere else in the nation. The officials kept the purpose of this place secret, almost against all odds. But there were two aspects of the top secret project which could not be hidden from the workers. One was the scale of what was going on. Nobody knew what it was, but it was the biggest effort they had ever seen in their young lives. And it would be the biggest effort of their entire lives. The other aspect which could not be hidden was the speed of the effort. Everyone could see it was moving at a blistering pace. It seemed that housing and industrial plants were built almost overnight. 
These two elements, speed and scale, made the atmosphere electric. Throw into the equation youth and hormones, and it was the most amazing place in the country. The workers said it was the most exciting time of their lives and the scariest too. The terror and carnage of war was the backdrop for everything. And you've been listening to Richard Cook telling the story of Oak Ridge, Tennessee and the Manhattan Project, which, by the way, this should be a, a story that every school child knows, right? I mean, how, how we don't know this story. Well, shame on all of us in the end. Uh, in a very short time, going from the eviction of farmers to the fifth largest city in a state, most of the people there not knowing precisely what was going on, but my goodness, given the speed and scale They knew it was something big, and it had to do with the war, no doubt. So many of them losing family in the endeavor over in the Pacific and soon in the European theater as well. Only two to 300 workers knew the purpose of the site. But my goodness, why the rush? Hitler was at it trying to develop his own atomic arsenal, and he had a two-year head start. And always put yourself in the position of not knowing what's going to happen. And we try and do that here on Our American Stories. The folks there, the folks fighting, the generals, the president, had no idea what was going to happen, and that's why the rush and the speed. When we come back, we continue with Richard Cook, the story of the Manhattan Project, which of course means telling the story of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, here on Our American Stories. stories and the story of the Manhattan Project, America's World War II project that was hell-bent on beating Germany to the atomic bomb. But with the immense size and scale of this enterprise and all the people involved, how the heck did they keep it a secret? Back to Richard Cook. You can't hide a town of 75,000 people. But what was going on out there? Folks in Knoxville wondered. In other military plants, the narrative was straightforward. Thousands of rail cars of raw materials would be shipped in and thousands of jeeps or tanks would come out. Or the locals could see thousands of newly finished planes taking off. No mystery at all. Oak Ridge was different. Thousands of rail cars delivered raw materials and nothing, absolutely nothing, was coming out. Well, something was coming out, but nobody saw it. It was a single piece of gray-looking metal the size of a volleyball. It was made up of 90% uranium-235. Not thousands of volleyballs, but a single one. Over 75,000 workers were working desperately around the clock making a volleyball. 
And if they could make one, they might be able to make a second one. In 2020 dollars, they would spend $14 billion on a single 140-pound volleyball. Of course, if this was a Hollywood movie, the entire volleyball would be delivered to Los Alamos, New Mexico in a security convoy. There'd be 40 trucks and security guards with machine guns and American flags waving. It didn't happen that way though. As enough uranium was separated, a military officer dressed in a business suit would be given a sealed briefcase. Inside the lined case was two teacup sized containers with screw lids nestled in a special carrier. The officer would go to Knoxville, get on a public train, and travel to Chicago. At the train depot, he would meet another officer dressed as a businessman. He would take the briefcase and get on a train bound for Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then he would drive to Los Alamos. The officer going to Chicago from Oak Ridge never knew where the briefcase was going, and the other officer never knew where the briefcase came from. Sometimes workers went to Knoxville to shop or eat, and they were trained how to answer questions from nosy natives. So, what are you making out there anyway? Uh, about 85 cents an hour. Um, what do you do out there anyway? I'm in project management. How many people work out there? Oh, about half of them. The obsession with secrecy and security was well-founded. Officials were deeply concerned that the Germans would learn the extent of the American efforts and would double down on their own program. Or, more likely, the Germans would infiltrate Oak Ridge and steal industrial secrets about American methods so it could aid their own work. When all workers were hired in Oak Ridge, they went through an eight-hour orientation. Six hours of it was keep your mouth shut, don't talk about your work to anyone, including your spouse. You could be fired and possibly go to prison for espionage. There were billboards everywhere in town which said shut up and do your job. Every six months, there was a refresher course in case you couldn't get the message the other four times. Outgoing mail was opened, read, and portions were blacked out if necessary. One of the tragic unintended consequences of these dictates was that nobody kept diaries or journals. Workers were petrified that military police would find them if they searched their homes. Oral histories done decades after the war will be the only record of the memories of these ignored heroes. There was something very conflicted about working and living in Oak Ridge 
during the war. At work, there was little to no job security. There were prohibitions, procedures, protocols, and security standards. Asking too many questions was a sure way to be fired. Of all the people who left the Manhattan Project, 40% of them were fired. But officials were greatly concerned that the workers would up and quit in droves. They were all strangers. Many of them were away from home and family for the first time. The secrecy graded some. All the rules at work put strains on others. Sometimes co-workers simply disappeared. The mythology was that they were reassigned to a radar tracking station in Alaska. You didn't dare ask about workers who disappeared. It would bring you unwanted attention. Because of all these strains, outside of work, officials were determined to keep the workers happy so they wouldn't quit. To the extent possible, the workers were pampered. Movie theaters were packed. Dance halls were full. Because most of the workers were working rotating shifts each week, athletic leagues competed around the clock. There was a symphony orchestra made up of volunteers. A playhouse was open, which is still in operation today. If you wanted a special interest club for a hobby, you would tell authorities and they would do the publicity. At one time, there were eight different orchid clubs. Ed Westcott created a vivid record of the social history of the town. He took thousands of pictures of the industrial plants. Honestly, these are photos only a scientist could love. A machine is a machine. But photos of folks living their lives was where Ed's talents really came to the fore. Those photos tell a human story, and Ed was a master at that part of the story. And you've been listening to Richard Cook telling this remarkable story of a town that was built from scratch to compete with the Germans to be the first country to create a nuclear bomb. And my goodness, what a complicated place to live and what a complicated place to work. 40% of the people who left the Manhattan Project were fired. Secrecy, of course, putting strains on everybody and everything. You certainly didn't ask questions about workers who disappeared. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about life at this place, in this town, at this time, and hear more about Ed Westcott. And again, he's the man who took the pictures. There were no diaries. People were just too afraid to keep written records. And the oral histories we have are fine and fair, but nothing from the immediate time but Mr. Westcott's pictures. When we come back, more of this remarkable story of a town, a time a place, and a photographer here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with our American stories and with the rest of the story of the Manhattan Project, the end of World War II, and Ed Westcott, the only man with a camera in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And these history stories, by the way, are always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And their Constitution 101 class, 10 hours, worth the price of admission. I learned more watching that class, actually being in that class, than I did at three years of the University of Virginia School of Law. But let's go back to Richard Cook for the rest of this remarkable story. There was a sense of expectation in the summer of 1945 among some of the Oak Ridge workers. Some workers got a heads up from their bosses. Something was afoot. Certainly, Ed Westcott knew something was up. It was toward the end of July of 1945 and he was instructed to print hundreds of copies of 18 of his photographs for press packets to be sent out to hundreds of newspapers across the country and even some foreign newspapers. He printed thousands of photographs. Ed had, in the last few months, pieced together what was happening in Oak Ridge. He went everywhere and saw almost everything. He wasn't totally sure, but he was mostly sure. In late August of 1945, he was sent rolls of film from military photographers in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was after Japan had surrendered. He was the only one allowed to develop the film and print the photographs. It took him three days. Armed guards were posted outside his darkroom door the entire time. President Truman gave a midday address to the nation on August 6th of 1945. He revealed that the United States had developed a devastating new weapon called an atomic bomb. They had dropped an atomic weapon on Hiroshima, Japan. It was equal to 15,000 tons of dynamite. Almost as an aside, Truman said the weapon had been developed in Pasco, Washington, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, outside of Knoxville. That is how almost all the workers learned about what they had been working on. Hugh Barnett joined the Manhattan Project while its offices were actually in Manhattan, in New York City. He learned the purpose of the Manhattan Project his first day at work. He moved to Oak Ridge in 1943. In the summer of 1945, it was obvious to Hugh that the project was closing in on the amount of uranium-238 they needed for a weapon. He carpooled out to K-25 each day with four other workers. They all knew the purpose of their work in Oak Ridge. August 14th was Hugh Barnett's 29th birthday. Hiroshima 
was bombed on August 6th and Nagasaki on August 9th. The entire country was on pins and needles expecting the surrender of the Japanese. Hugh was not celebrating his birthday that day, but he was also on pins and needles too. His wife had gone into labor with their first child. They were at the hospital. It was three blocks from the main town site called Jackson Square. There was no air conditioning, so the windows were open to fight the intense summer heat. Hugh's first son was born at 7 p.m. The commotion in the hospital room subsided, but Hugh and Shirley could hear distant cheering outside their room. Hugh wondered how word had spread so quickly about the birth of Lee. President Truman, in a nationwide radio address at 7 p.m., announced Japan had surrendered in that World War II after 65 million deaths was finally over. There was great joy in the hospital room that night and in the entire nation, too. More than a million sing and dance in the streets in the biggest celebration the Windy City has ever seen. Joy is unconfined. Meanwhile, in Jackson Square, three blocks away, Ed Westcott was taking photos of Oak Ridgers celebrating the ending of the war. There is a famous photograph of a huge crowd celebrating looking directly at Ed, who was standing in the bed of a truck. Many held up the Knoxville newspaper with a half-page headline which shouted out, War Ends. With that photo, Ed Westcott must have wondered what the future held for him. His job assignment was essentially done. With that photograph, Ed had brought to a close the most important work of his professional life. On that night, he finished the most important photographic archive of 20th century American history. On that night, Ed Westcott was 23 years old. As it turned out, Ed stayed in Oak Ridge as a government photographer for another 20 years. In 2017, he was nominated for the Presidential Medal of Freedom, our nation's highest civilian honor. In 2016, the Honor Air Program in Knoxville, which is 25 miles from Oak Ridge, decided to expand their definition of a veteran to include Manhattan Project workers who worked in Oak Ridge. The program flies over 130 veterans each trip to Washington, D.C. to tour the war memorials. This trip is done at no charge to the veterans. They leave in the morning and are back in Knoxville the same evening. It's a long day for all the veterans and the volunteers who make it all possible. 
In October of 2016, four Oak Ridgers took the trip. Among them was Ed Westcott. I was not there for the send-off, but I was there that evening for their welcome home, along with thousands of other people. Warren Buffett, along with Bill Gates, were interviewed by Charlie Rose in 2017. It was a set-up question, but fascinating nonetheless. Charlie asked Warren what he thought was the second most important document in American history. Warren said, of course, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were most important, but Buffett said the second most important document was written by two immigrants to President Roosevelt in 1939. They weren't really immigrants, but rather refugees from Nazi Germany. One, not quite as well known, was Leo Szilard, a brilliant physicist from Hungary. The other letter writer was a refugee from Germany and happened to be the most famous scientist in the world, Albert Einstein. In Buffett's estimation, these two refugees saved the world. The two told Roosevelt that Hitler was working on developing atomic weapons and Germany had a huge head start. If Germany won this arms race, Nazism and Japanese militarism would rule most of the globe. The letter got to the White House in August of 1939. And eight weeks later, the earliest version of the Manhattan Project was created. And a very special thanks to Richard Cook for that remarkable storytelling. And Richard is the author and compiler of Ignored Heroes of World War II, the Manhattan Project workers of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and oral history with quotes from the workers who were eyewitnesses to one of the most important events of the 20th century. And no doubt, Hitler's regime of hate drove away the very talent that would come into America and kill the German war machine. And by the way, Ed Westcott, on March 29, 2019, passed. He was still taking photographs a week before his death. And you can find his photos by punching in Ed Westcott and the words Oak Ridge into your search engine. There are thousands of pictures out there taken by this one man. A remarkable story. Again, special thanks to Richard Cook and great job on this by Robbie, our Cracker Jack producer here at Our American Stories. The story of a town, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a photographer, Ed Westcott, here on Our American Stories.